I've been a student uh, on and off for a number of years uh, and uh, a lecturer in a tertiary college uh, and uh, so I understand what it's like uh, to be a student. I've, I've had that experience in my life. At one stage I was teaching in a Bible college uh, and in particular I was teaching uh, the New Testament uh, from the Bible and I remember I had one particularly anxious mature age student whose name was Joanne. She had, uh, you, you won't be able to relate to this, but she had procrastinated all semester and had not done her homework uh, in my class. Uh, she had not done what I had asked her to do and she'd left everything to the last minute. So she decided to take a little punt on the exam at the end of semester. I don't know if this resonates with anybody's experience uh, in the room. But we had studied 12 topics over the course of the semester and she knew that on the exam we had to answer five questions. Now you know what you have to do, don't you? When you've done 12 topics and there are five questions on the exam, you need to prepare probably eight different areas to make sure that one of your five topics are going to come up. And uh, each of the topics we had studied was a book in the New Testament. Well, on this particular day, uh, she, she had run out of time uh, to prepare her eight topics. And so she decided to take the biggest gamble of her academic life and only prepare five topics for the exam. Out of the 12, we had studied in the class. And so it came to the day of the exam and it was reading time. And uh, uh, the, you, could, you could see the students, they turned over their page and uh, within a couple of seconds, we heard what came to be known in our class as the Corinthian gasp. Because as she turned over the page, she realised that her cherished topic of Corinthians was not on the exam paper. And there was a great gasp that went forward, followed by a deep moan from this lady who realised she could see her entire semester going up in a puff of smoke because she had gambled on having five, uh, the five topics she had prepared for that night. And she knew she was going to fail the course, which she did. Have you ever been in an experience like that of uh, gambling everything? No, 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 you're all shaking your heads. Never, never. We've never done anything like that uh, in our academic career. It's pretty demoralising, isn't it, to get, that get to that point of the semester and realise that you're going to fail the course. And it raises so many questions, doesn't it? What now? What will my parents say? What will my lecturers and classmates think of me if I fail this subject? But I think there's a deeper question that runs under this success and failure uh, topic that we've been thinking about tonight. And I think it's the question, am I good enough? Am I good enough? That, that's, that's what success and failure brings up for us, doesn't it? If I'm successful, 
I feel like I'm good enough. Even if I fail, I feel like I'm not good enough. But are you good enough? That's the question. I like to cook. I like to think I'm a very good cook. And, and the more complex the recipe, the happier I am in the kitchen. And I can pull off some pretty good stuff, which you can probably tell uh, just looking at me that I like to cook. The other day, I made a pretty straightforward rice and chicken dish for my wife, and I burnt it. And I was so cranky with myself that I thought, I'm better than that. I'm a good cook. I'm better than that. And there are a whole bunch of issues that came up in me as I tipped the rice and chicken dish into the bin uh, about pride and humility, about competence and acceptance. So tonight as we contemplate this idea of success and failure at the end of this semester with exams looming and uh, maybe you, if you need to leave now and go home and prepare that uh, se sixth, seventh and eighth topic so that you're not doing just the five for your exam uh, coming up, well, uh, just wait till the end of the talk. Uh, I want us to contemplate this deeper question of am I good enough? Do I have to succeed to be good enough? And if I fail, will that make me not good enough? And in particular, I want us to think about how this, what, what this has to do with how I relate to God. Am I good enough for God? Do I have to be successful in life to be good enough for God? To be acceptable to Him? And what do we have to do to meet with Him? Do we have to succeed? Well, I think these, answers are partly, uh, these questions are partly answered in our reading tonight from Luke's Gospel. There are two stories here, one that Jesus told uh, about a Pharisee and a tax collector. It was a, a story he made up, a story to illustrate a point. And then the second is a story that Luke tells about Jesus and the little children that come to him. So first of all, the Pharisee and the tax collector. So the first story uh, is uh, Jesus tells to this group of people who are listening to him. He describes a scene. And it was a common scene that could have happened every day in Jerusalem in the temple. It was about two men who went up to the temple to pray. And right at the start of the story, he sets you up for what you think the story is going to be about. He says two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. Now, they were two very recognisable kinds of people in Jesus' day. Uh, to the people listening, they would have known that the Pharisee was the successful one. The Pharisee was the upstanding, religious, good person, the very successful person. They were the elite members of society. They were the A-plus students. They were very, very good people and they stood head and shoulders above everybody else. The most despised person in the society was the tax collector, the other person in Jesus' story. They were despised people. They were agents 
of the Roman government that was uh, in Israel at the time that occupied the land. And they collected taxes on behalf of Rome, usually a little more uh, than, than what was owed to the government so that they could line their pockets and make themselves rich. They would take money from people and everyone hated them. They were the failures. They were the despised ones because of it. So when Jesus opens up this story and says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other and the tax collector, everybody would have gone, mm, I know where this is going. If it was a movie, uh, the, the, the Pharisee would have been the guy riding on the white horse. He, he would have been wearing a white hat. And the tax collector would have been wearing a black hat. He's the guy that you've got to really worry about. The most trusted profession lists uh, in Australia go like this. Do you know what the most trusted pr profession in Australia is? Got an idea? Hmm? No, a lawyer? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I think they might be on the other list. Uh, an, an ambulance officer, a firefighter, not really a profession, well, maybe it is, a mother, a nurse, a pilot. That's the top five. The most trusted profession in Australia today is an ambulance officer. They're going to help you out if you're in need. Do you know what's at the other end? You know, at the bottom? Politician. They're right at the bottom of the list. What's above a politician at the bottom of the list? Uh, now, that's number three. There's one between the real estate agent and the politician. The lawyer. <laughs> You're nearly there. A, a car salesman. So, right down the bottom, you've got the real estate agents, the car salesmen, and the politicians. I, th I think we're a bit hard on our politicians. They're, they're doing their best, but they're the two things. Now, if Jesus were telling the story today, he'd say, two men went up to the temple to pray, one, an ambulance officer, and the other, a politician. And you'd go, ah, I know where this story is going. Now, this is what uh, Jesus says the Pharisee did. He, sa he says uh, in verse 11, the Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed... God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Now, we have no reason to think that this would have been uh, an unusual thing for a Pharisee to say. Uh, we know that they fasted twice a week. They know that they, they tithed their money. They took 10% of all their money and they gave it to the temple. We know that that's how they lived. And most of them uh, would have lived an exemplary life like this. Very different to the tax collectors. This Pharisee's prayer was proud and true. The tax collector in Jesus' story did something very different. Jesus said he stood a long way off, not out under the spotlights, over there in the dark. He kept his head down, probably not even noticing the Pharisee. He beat his breast, which was a sign of anguish, and he pleaded to God 
for mercy. He said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Who do you expect to be the one who is good enough for God? The successful, upstanding person who prays and fasts and gives away his money and is religious and, and looks the real deal? Or the guy who's over in the dark, beating his breast in despair, knowing he's a sinner and a failure in the eyes of everyone? Well, there's a twist to the story. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the man over in the dark, this tax collector, this disreputable, lying, cheating tax collector is the one who went home justified, the one who went home right with God, the one who was acceptable to God, the one who was good enough was this one. He went away right with God, not the religious man. Jesus then tells us what the principle is. Verse 14, he says, I tell you, uh, this man rather than the other went home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You hear what Jesus is saying? If you want to be good enough, if you want to be right with God, you don't have to stand in a special place. You don't have to be successful in life. You don't have to cook a good dinner. You don't have to pass your exams. You don't even have to be a special kind of person. In fact, Jesus says, those who are proud in their achievements those who trust in themselves and their successes, those who rest their hope in their spiritual and moral credentials would be brought low and not acceptable to God. But those who come to God rest on God's mercy. They come before him and they beat their chest in despair and say, have mercy on me, God, for I'm a sinner who look for his grace and forgiveness. You see, it was the tax collector who realised the great gulf between him and God and his great need for God to bridge the gap, for God's mercy to bring them together. God is less interested in what you do, less interested in whether you pass or fail, and more interested in the state of your heart. The state of what's inside, the state of, of, of your acknowledgement of who you are and your need of him, an attitude of repentance, of turning to him in recognition of your unworthiness rather than a statement of your achievements before him. So that's story number one. Story number two has a similar theme. It's not a parable. This time Luke uh, records an event that happened with uh, people bringing their children to Jesus so that he would touch them and perhaps bless them. 
And the disciples, Jesus' followers, were ticked off with people that were bringing their children to Jesus. They thought he, he was too important for that to just bring ordinary children up to him. Jesus was too grand to be bothered with children. So they rebuked them. They said, that's a wrong thing to do. Take those children away. But Jesus called the disciples to himself and he said this, verse 16, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Jesus displays his incredible ability to welcome the most insignificant people to meet him. As we read through the stories of Jesus' life, we see him reaching out and touching people who were untouchable, allowing people with diseases to come to him or, or people who, who, who shouldn't be acceptable in society and he would reach out and gather them to himself. And right here with the children, he demonstrates that again. I remember a number of years ago, I was in the same room as a very famous Christian leader, famous for many books. He'd written many Bible commentaries. He was uh, one of the leaders of uh, the Christian church in Britain and around the world. And uh, we happened to be in a lunch queue together. And I summoned up my courage and introduced myself to him. I was just a young person from Australia of all places at the time. And he turned to me and he greeted me and he said, come and have lunch with me. And I sat down with him. And it was, it was wonderful as a, as a nobody, me, being able to meet this great Christian leader in this moment. Well, here was Jesus welcoming the little children to come to him. Children in the ancient world were insignificant. No one wanted to know who they were. They were marginalised. And in verse 17, he tells us the principle, Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Not only is this a statement that Jesus welcomes people like the little children, but unless we come with the attitude of being someone who is a nobody, being someone who is a failure, then we won't enter the kingdom. What he means by this is that approaching God like a little child is coming with our humility. It's about being nothing. It's not standing on your power or your status or your wealth or your rights or your success or your goodness or your greatness or your good looks. But coming as you are, dependent, helpless, humble, that's what he wants. I 
over my life, I've met a lot of babies. We used to, used to be a pastor of a church. We had lots of young families, and there were lots of babies. And uh, every year, lots of babies have been born. And I have to say, sometimes babies are cute. Really nice little baby, you know, really cute. But sometimes they're really ugly, you know. Uh, look a bit like a lizard. And, you know, you, you kind of like, they're not very nice. Some, sometimes when they're a little bit older, they come up to you and they've got snot on their faces. And when they're little, they've got vomit on their clothes, you know. And like, yeah, mm, nice, you know, not nice. But the thing is, Mothers and fathers love these kids, whether they look like a lizard or not. Whether they've got snot on their face or vomit on their clothes or not, they love them. And Jesus says, come to me like that. Come to me with your snot and your vomit. Come to me as you are. Because I love you. The way you are. You don't have to be successful to come to God. He loves you as you are. When I was a little kid, I did not look like a lizard. But when I was a little kid, my parents made me dress up to go to church. I had my Sunday best, my best shirt, my tie and specially shined black shoes, my hair just so, so I could go to church. And it's what we would do every week. As a special treat tonight, I have a photo of myself ready for church. Now, please don't laugh. It's not polite to laugh at little children. But that's me in the middle. Little white suit. It's good, isn't it? Little white suit ready to go to church. Next slide. I've got four of these. Look at that. Little, little double-breasted number. Two buttons. Very smart. Next one. That's me with my sister. Oh, two rows of buttons this time. And extremely high shorts all the way up, up to here. And socks. And the last one. Ah, suits. I was growing up. I had a suit when I was a little bit older. You know, I, I thought, I, as I was growing up, because we did this every week, and uh, what I haven't done is make you laugh at my mother because she used to wear a hat, you know, back in the day to go to church, and uh, I had some pictures of her too, but I left them out. Uh, I thought that this is what you had to do to be acceptable to God. You had to dress up. You had to be perfect. You had to be shiny and, and, and beautiful and successful. And, but when I gave my life to Christ at the age of 15, I realised he loved me just the way I was. And it took me years to work out that I didn't have to dress like or that to come to church. But what makes us acceptable to God is what's in our heart. It's who we are. And it's who God is. So tonight, I want to talk to those of you who think that you have to impress God 
to be acceptable to him. See, sometimes I think we think that we have to be successful, we have to be perfect, we have to do the, the perfect thing in our life, like the, like the little boy dressing up for church, to be acceptable to God. And in essence, that's what both these stories are about, aren't they? The Pharisee in Jesus' story thought he could tell God how good he was, what he had done, and that would be his ticket to God. The disciples betrayed by their actions that they thought that people who were not impressive should not be able to get to Jesus. So how do we try and impress God today? Well, some people think that, they are, that if they are good enough, then God will accept them. So they do works of charity, they keep a few rules, they try not to lie or cheat, and then they think that God will accept them. 95% of Australians believe in God, and they believe that if they have a good life, they'll be okay. I guess subconsciously they think they'll be able to plead their case like the Pharisee in Jesus' story. Others think they have to be religious to be acceptable to God, to go to church twice a week, to pray more uh, than just when they're in a jam, to know the words of the Lord's Prayer or do the religious thing, any religion thing, and God will be happy with them. But the thing is, Self-promotion, self-centeredness, success, prayers that are all about me and not about God, doesn't impress God at all. What impresses him is a heart, a heart that's open to him. So I want to talk to those of you who think that you want to get to God if you come to him, is, is that he, he's interested in your heart. You see, every one of us is like the tax collector. Every one of us is full of failures. Every one of us is like him who stands off in the dark, in the corner, beating his breast and saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. You need God's mercy, his unmerited favour. You need his mercy. I need his mercy because I'm a sinner. You know the scariest thing about this story? Is the job I do means I'm this guy. I'm the Pharisee. I'm the religious one. But actually what I need to know is for me to get to God, my heart has to be like the tax collector. Has to be the one who says, have mercy on me, a sinner. The one who says, I come to him like a little child, helpless, snot on my face, vomit on my clothes, with all my failures, and I throw myself on his mercy God loves you the Lord Jesus loves you he loves you for who you are not what you do not whether you pass or fail 
Not whether you finish your list. Not whether you burn the dinner or not. Because he loves you as you are. And all he wants is for you to say, have mercy on me, a sinner. You know what Jesus said at the end of that? Who do you think went home right with God? I tell you, he said, he was the tax collector. He went home right with God. Now tonight, you can go home right with God. You can ask him for his mercy in your life. And if you're sitting here tonight and you know that you're full of failures and sin and mess and you want to get to God, then all you've got to do is ask. And if you want to talk to me or or someone else you've seen up the front here tonight about how to get to God, how to be put in relationship with him, the one who loves you, then I'd love to talk to you tonight. I'm going to be down the front here to talk and pray with you tonight. Why don't we pray right now? Father, thank you for uh, this story, uh, these stories of the Lord Jesus. And Father, we pray that uh, you would help us to know that our acceptability to you does not depend on uh, our successes or our failures, but on your mercy and your kindness. And we turn to you tonight and thank you for your love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have an now to have a question time. So I'm going to invite our panel up and as they're coming up, I'm going to introduce them. So we are joined tonight by Christine from Uni Fellowship. Irene from Focus here, and Richard's coming back up as well. Wonderful. So during this Q&A time, you're going to have the opportunity to ask any questions that you've had come up during Richard talking or at all tonight about success and failure, or if there's any other um, thoughts that you've had that have been on your heart and you're Um, wanting to have your questions answered or just things that you're curious about, now's the opportunity to get some answers for those questions. So there is a text line behind me on the board. Plug that uh, number into your phone and you can text anonymously with your question. Also, we will be um, roaming around to, if there are people who just want to put up their hand, you can do it that way as well. This is to the bishop. Uh, if you don't have to wear your Sunday best to church, why do Anglican priests wear all the robes and everything? Oh, that's mean. <laughs> that's a mean question. Um, so, uh, I, I, the, the textbook answer is uh, some Anglican ministers uh, wear robes in church um, because that, that those clothes have been worn for many, many years, so it's a sort of tradition thing. 
and what they're supposed to do is kind of make the person, the, the, the individual person disappear in a sense so that they are just God's mouthpiece. So that's what they're designed to do so that you're not sitting there going, that's a really ugly jumper that he's wearing tonight and be thinking about the ugly jumper uh, and or, you know, gosh, wouldn't you think he'd have better dress sense than that? Uh, and so not to get distracted. Um, but I, my view is, I think they're so odd in the world today that they're more of a distraction that you're sitting there thinking, why is that dude wearing a dress? That's a really odd thing, and that gets in the way. So uh, most Anglican ministers in Tasmania don't wear robes on a Sunday. Sometimes the bishop does. You should hear his wife on the topic. <laughs> she doesn't like them. Does that help? Good. It was a mean question. Uh, the next question is from the, actually from the text line. So could you tell me if I ask for God's mercy, what happens next? One of you. Forgiveness, um, compassion, restoration, and commitment to being with you always through the Spirit, never leaving you alone, and through his guidance and his presence, transforming you every day to become more and more like the Jesus who loves us and has told us the story so that we would come to him for mercy. That's what happens next. Yeah, uh, in one sense, you're given a whole new life, right? You're made a new creation. You become a child of God um, and you can enjoy knowing him in this life and then forever in the next. Uh, and so, I guess in relation to success in failure and failure, that means that you are free to uh, pursue excellence in this life and, um, you know, to feel joy in your success and disappointment in your failure, but to not be crushed by those things, uh, to not have it pull the ground out from underneath you when you fail and to not um, feel like you're better than others when you succeed. Um, but it's also so much broader than success and failure, uh, yeah, knowing God and, um, and yeah, we can know him by coming to him with that humble heart. A big theme from your talk that emerged was uh, bringing our hearts humbly before the Lord. Um, what are some practical ways we can bring our hearts humbly before God to be seen as acceptable in His sight? Yeah, look, I think one of the, uh, one of the, the temptations of uh, success is pride. Yeah, the, the, 
the brightest people in Tasmania at the moment are sitting in this room. You know, you're, you're, you're the elite. You're the people who are studying at university. And some of you are doing really well. Some of you are going to be really successful uh, in your careers. The great temptation is to be proud about that and to say, I'm pretty good. So I think uh, part of this is bringing our hearts to him is acknowledging that actually in, even in our success and our pride is our sinfulness and our, our self-promotion. And so bringing my heart to God is daily acknowledging that I am unworthy of him, that I can't ever be good enough uh, to be acceptable to God. So it's part of my daily routine to confess my sins to, and, and not just to say, forgive me, God, I'm a sinner, but to name them. I'm not going to list them in front of you, but I list them in front of God every day. These, these are the things that I'm sinful for because I want to be real with him. You know, I, I don't, I don't want to be doing any pretense with God. And so bringing my heart to him is actually laying that bare and uh, allowing God to see. So last night, my Bible study group, uh, we're studying Joel, and we were in Joel chapter 2, and he says, rend, like, in, in, rend your hearts, not your garments. So when, when something terrible would happen uh, in grief, you'd tear your clothes. And he says, don't just tear your clothes, tear your heart. And we were talking about what does it mean to rend your heart? It's the same thing. Open your heart to God and actually be really honest about what's in there. And actually, your, your pride and successes don't cover up the, the muck that's in, inside. Now, for some people, that, that muck feels more like shame than it feels like sin. And so some of you will, will experience shame in failure. Can, it, can you possibly ring your parents to tell them that you failed this subject or that you, you know, uh, something bad has happened to you? Uh, and, it's, and it's about acknowledging that shame before him. So... Uh, what, whatever it is that is getting in the way of you and God actually opening that up to him and saying, have mercy on me and, and I, I throw myself on your mercy. So, I, uh, does that help? Yeah. A few from the text line. So, a, a thought experiment. If Jesus was alive today, which political party would he have voted for? Liberal or Labour? Any of you study political science? No. Well, I'm just going to maybe suggest... I, don't, I think if Jesus was alive today, he probably wouldn't be an Australian citizen. So he probably wouldn't <laughs> be vote. able to vote nice. in an Australian election. Nice Thank you, Aaron. Yes. Thank you. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Nice vote. Yeah, but he probably would be. Because he's the king of the whole world. Yeah. So you can't mm. get out of it. So who do you vote for? It's a great thing, isn't it? It is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Christine is from the US for those. And um, I have drug my feet with getting my citizenship for this very reason. But <laughs> oh, I don't have to choose. You don't have to choose. <laughs> it's tricky. I think, so when I think about voting, I, d I do consider it very important and it's an important thing to care about politics and care about our leaders and who is leading our country. But then at the same time, I also think about Jesus saying, give to Caesars what is Caesars. And 
that sort of thing. So having that um, respect for our leaders while also having God as our king is an important thing. Whether Jesus would vote for Liberal or Labor, like, I, I don't think there's even really an answer. I mean, both have their pros and both have their cons. Um, yeah. So. I think Jesus is a little bit blue, <laughs> a little bit red, and a little bit green. Yeah. All right? <laughs> I, so I think, I think, you know, God wants us to, to love and care for his world. He, he wants us to steward his creation and care for it and look after it. So when I meet the leader of the Greens, I say, I am so with you on caring for the forests and caring for the bandicoots and caring for this stuff, all right? But I'm not with you on some other things. I think Jesus is a little bit red because he, he is the one who loves the poor. He's the one who loves the outcast. He's the one who, who cares for the marginalised, all right? And I think he's a little bit blue because there's a, a, a conservatism about Jesus' moral framework for the world, which is reflected in some of those uh, right, further right to the right politics. So uh, I think he would be as confused as I was in the last election of how to vote. It's a really hard thing because there are bits of each of the the political parties that I think uh, are, are things that resonate. So what I try and do is, is think about other people and what they need the most and vote for the party that I think can deliver that for them. And that, that's, that's, that doesn't give me an easy... That's not an equation, but I think it does help you think through some of the issues. The next one is still from the text line. So what does sinner mean? I just immediately think of someone who wants to live their own way. So someone who wants to be successful in their eyes and they've got their agenda going and they're like, this is what I've got to do in order for me to be good me to be good and to feel good about myself and turning away from what God has planned and what God wants for them. Um, yeah, it's that turning away from God. There's also an element of um, take. So in, in creation with uh, man and woman in the garden, um, the language used is um, take. And it's used in other parts of scripture where a man or a woman has fallen away from God's good purposes and what God has said is good and right. So God has placed people in his world and has set out very clearly for his people what is good and right. And he desires to give them blessing, abundant blessing in his good and right world. And when people, men and women, women, decide to reject that gift of blessing in his good and right world and take for themselves what they determine is good for them, which is opposed to God's good purposes, 
that person is a sinner. Hmm. Good. Well said. So let's do another one from the text line. How is this Christian God's mercy he offers and wants to give different to what all the other gods in my life might offer? Um, at the start of the night, uh, someone up on stage, I can't remember who, uh, referenced a story about building your house on the rock and building your house on the sand. Uh, and the idea that uh, the person who follows God has a foundation underneath their house uh, that is solid, that is firm, that does not move when the storm comes. Uh, whereas if you build your house on the sand and then uh, the rains come, the storms come, the winds come, uh, it will come out from underneath you. Uh, and there are many things in this world we can put our trust in, our own success, um, the merit that we might get from uh, achieving good karma, uh, the blessings that we can get from praying to uh, our family's God. Uh, but all of these things depend on what we can do, and ultimately they are the sand beneath our house. Uh, it may look good for a while, but when the wind comes, when the rain comes, um, when we can't succeed anymore, uh, when we can't achieve perfection anymore, uh, our house will collapse. Uh, whereas for the Christian who puts their faith not in what they can do, but what in Jesus has done for them, uh, we have a firm foundation underneath us that does not give way when the storm comes. Just picking up on that, I think uh, many of the religions of the world want you to do and what Christianity says is it's done and so uh, many of the religions of the world say do more stuff to make you acceptable to God it's a bit like the Pharisee be a be a, an upstanding person do enough uh, obedient acts that you're acceptable to God uh, offer enough sacrifices appease the gods meditate until you lose yourself do 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 but actually what what the christian god says is it's all done and all you need to do is accept it jesus has done it all for us he's in our place and we just have to trust him uh, and so uh, trust what he has done for us so coming to him for mercy is saying i can't do but I ask you to take me as I am. And he says, welcome. It's, it's the tax collector who goes home right with God, not the guy who's done all the stuff. Down the front. And then I think we've got one up the back as well. I mean, I, I was brought up with the man's side of win and lose. Although, like, I understand, like, maybe in God's, God's eye, I'm good enough. But every time when I 
um, like apply for a job then get rejected, I still feel like the frustration is there. Yeah. So my question is like how to deal with those frustration. I think one of the trickiest things in that is when it's something that you need, right? Like you need to have a job and you need to have food and you need to be able to afford things. And when you when it's difficult to get things that you need, it's like, but, but God, I need this thing, right? Um, I think a lot of it is just trust. And that's hard, especially when things are really, really difficult like that. Um, but just being able to trust and rest assured that God does have what's best for you in mind, and here's a plan that you don't know about as well that is better than anything you could ever imagine. So it's, it's really tricky because you, you do still feel like a failure and you do still feel like you haven't done enough, and, um, yeah, that whole mindset of, oh, well, at least God thinks that I'm good enough, that sometimes it's difficult to have that reflect in your life um, day to day, um, but yeah, I very much understand that frustration, um, but then actually fighting against it in a way, or acknowledging it more so, acknowledging that frustration, and then still being able to trust in God's purpose and plan for your life, it's a really difficult thing to do, but um, I think something that we grow in, right, like the more frustrations and the more things that um, you struggle with, the more that you do grow and you do mature as well. So, yeah, that's a tricky one though. Yeah, I think there are a lot of um, good things that we get uh, from having a job. We get um, status, we get income, we get a sense of meaning and purpose. Uh, maybe we get a community of colleagues. Um, we... And... Uh, there are some parts of that that, um, so the Christian, uh, sorry, I'm fumbling over my words. Uh, the Bible, the word of God, teaches that work is good, that it was made by God, that it was created as something for us to do on earth. And so it's natural that we're going to feel disappointed um, and a sense of lack when we don't have it in our lives. But there are other things that we're hoping for we might be hoping for from a job uh, that we can find in the promises of Christ even when we don't have one. And so the status that you might be looking for from having a job, um, you have greater status in Christ, uh, in knowing God and being a child of God. Uh, the community that you might get from a job, uh, you have a family that extends all across the world from knowing Christ and being in him. Um, the sense of validation and self-worth and purpose, uh, all of that can be found in our relationship with God. And so I think it's always going to feel disappointing to be rejected from a job. I applied for lots of jobs last year I didn't even want and still felt upset when I was rejected from the jobs I didn't want. Uh, but we can, I guess, the pain of rejection is less when we find our ultimate identity and purpose and status in God. Hmm. Uh, hi. Uh, 
excuse me, but uh, my language and uh, the question is not structured. Uh, but I was just a little bit confused um, about what the Christian God has to offer, and he answered, uh, giving our life to him, uh, to Jesus. Um, and before you also mentioned that uh, Jesus looks into the state of your heart and not necessarily the services that you're doing. Um, so uh, the question is, um, for instance, using my experiences, uh, I'm a survivor of war and trauma. Um, and you see uh, the world, the ugly side of the world. And sometimes those experiences affect your, um, uh, the state of your heart. Yeah. Uh, so sometimes um, uh, I feel um, the services that you do actually affects your state of heart with time. Yeah. So if you don't have that state of heart, does it mean that you cannot give your life to God or through services, uh, through those things that the Pharisee was doing, uh, will get you to that state of the heart? Yeah, so uh, thanks for your question. It's a really great one. I, I think um, uh, the, the service that the Pharisee did was not bad. He prayed several times a day, gave money to the poor, uh, he fasted. That they're good things to do. But doing them is not what makes you right with God. Uh, the, the, yes, the stuff that happens to us in our life, and I can't imagine what your life has been like. I've never experienced anything like that. But the stuff that happens to us in our life affects our heart. Uh, and the service we do affects our heart. But actually what, what, what God is interested in is not whether your heart is even directed towards him, but he, ac he accepts us even when our hearts are broken, even when our hearts are despairing, even when our hearts are confused, even when our hearts are corrupt. And what the, what the tax collector did was just said, God, take me as I am. So I think the good news for people who have, have lived through war and trauma or the people who've lived through sexual abuse or the people who've lived through domestic violence, or the people who've lived through uh, some other kind of trauma, uh, is that God says he, he loves you, even with the damage that's in. Every, every one of us will have damage in ourselves, in our inner beings, for, from what has happened to us in our lives. But the beauty of God is, he's, and, and the Lord Jesus is, he, he takes that brokenness and remakes it and, and heals it and, and transforms us by his spirit within us uh, as we give ourselves over to him. So, uh, there, so I, th I think we can come with the, with the broken trauma and mess and, and he accepts us that way. 
rather than having to be a certain person, rather than having to serve a certain way. So it's not that service is wrong, but it's about relying on success and relying on the service to be acceptable to him. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, I know many of you may want to ask questions, but there are just heaps of them right now. So, and we are really running out of time. So I would like to take one final question from you and we'll move on to the next session. Pressure's so on. <laughs> Pressure's on. Yes. And if you really have some burning questions, I would encourage you to also ask our panel maybe over dinner or a bit later. My question is, in my culture, in my context, making parents is the success. Mm -hmm. Making parents is the success and letting them down is the failure. So you said success is to know God. Even though I want to know God, want to have relationship with, with uh, uh, God, Jesus, but my parents are unhappy. So how does that work together? Yeah, there's been quite a lot of talk tonight about uh, God being our father. And there are many things that um, God is to us. He's our provider. He's our creator. He's our uh, friend. He's our brother. Uh, but he's also our father. And um, we want to please him. We want to uh, make him proud. Uh, and in our lives, I guess, we find that we can't. Um, but because of Jesus, the perfect one, um, he who was washed us clean, um, God is pleased with us, not because of what we have done, but because of what his son has done for us. And so there's a sense in which um, we are already pleasing to our heavenly father uh, and that approval surpasses any approval that we can get from our earthly parents. Um, but we still want to honour them. We still want to respect them. Uh, if you're from um, uh, a culture other than Australia, you might, yeah, you would know how embarrassingly little Australia honours their parents. Um, and, yeah, it's something that, being a Christian requires of us to honour our parents. Uh, yeah, but we are free to do that, no longer with the burden of, of having to, um, yeah, of that having to be the centre of our identity. Thank you for the questions. Uh, please keep asking them to any of anyone you've seen up on stage tonight. Uh, thank you, panel, again for answering them. Yes, thank you. Thank you.